In times long gone, in days of yore, there are legends and tales of dark folklore. Round candlelight and fireside, the tales are shared. Enchanting dark secrets in hushed tones declared. And from those days, both present and past, we beseech you now to brace yourself for the No Sleep Podcast. Sleepless tales commence, fellow travelers. I'm your guide, David Cummings. Last weekend, I heard an urgent bulletin on the news about a polar bear that had gotten loose from a nearby zoo. While out for a very late night walk the next day, I rounded a corner and came face to face with the very same polar bear. Imagine my shock. This encounter made me realize that I used to watch a lot of nature documentaries and haven't revisited any favorites in a while. So this week I've been rectifying that, and I can even claim it's for work because of those wonderful narrators. Sigourney Weaver, Kenneth Branagh, Forsyth Mercer, and Tilda Swinton, to name a few. And, of course, the inimitable Sir David Attenborough. It did make me a little sad, though, watching a couple of Mercer's best documentaries. Missing persons cases are always haunting, but the circumstances behind his disappearance in particular... Ah, well. Anyway, this is your annual reminder to make sure you respect the world around us. It's your duty as a human being to educate yourself on our life on this planet. And as well as nature documentaries, another good way to do that is to listen to the No Sleep Podcast. In our first tale, we join Kristen as she, along with her friend Amy, head out to visit a psychic. Kristen has regrets, you see. Major regrets that can only be handled by psychic intervention. But in this tale, shared with us by author Paul DeCumba, we're reminded that sometimes even meddling with forces you do understand is a bad idea. Performing this tale are Mike Delgadio, Kristen DiMercurio, Aaron Lillis, Danielle McRae, Graham Rowett, and Erica Sanderson. So try not to continue making regrettable decisions. You really don't want to find yourself saying, we're not supposed to be here. Before the seance began, Kristen slid her hand into her coat pocket and touched the dead mouse. 
She ran her fingers over the strands of her husband's hair wrapped around its small, shriveled body. The room and walls were crowded with artifacts from Madame Lafour's occultist collection. The whole place looked like a goth-saw-us fire sale. Still, according to Kristen's research, Lafour was the best medium in the city, the one who got real results. Deep in her other pockets, she stroked the dead finch, its insides sewn full of dog teeth. Finches were tiny birds, so three of Harley's incisors was all Kristen could manage without splitting the bird wide open, like an overstuffed suitcase. (sighs) She sighed and steeled herself. Still touching the corpse, she closed her eyes, saw the flashing lights again, the air so hot and thick it choked her lungs, heard the fluids dripping, the potent stench of gas and oil, the lime and alcohol aftertaste from the gin and tonics still coating the inside of her mouth. Through the shattered window, a dog lay in the ditch, not moving. The brain fog, the heaviness of her head making it so hard to move as she looked over at the passenger seat to see. Please, mother, no more pain. Please, mother, eat my pain away. A throat cleared. Kristen snapped from her daze, let the corpses fall back into her pockets. She conjured a fake smile, aimed it across the table at the impatient medium. Madame Lafour was a gummy, angular woman whose sharp features made it difficult to gauge her age. Anywhere from 40 to 60 was a safe bet. Next to Kristen was her ever-tolerant and always-available friend Amy. Amy, who had no family, no other friends. Perfect, helpful Amy, who had no idea how important she was to Kristen. Thank you. Of course, Kay. Amy leaned in close. I'm up for anything if it gets you back to normal. Normal? What was normal, anyway? When Scott and Harley died, Kristen's version of normal disappeared for good. What she wanted now wasn't anybody's idea of normal. A single candle flickered in the center of the smooth, round table, its flame throwing jittery shadows across the walls. Madame Lafour cleared her throat for a second time. Did you bring the items I asked for? Kristen nodded and produced the slobber-encrusted stuffed octopus dog toy from her purse. Harley was Scott's dog from before Kristen's time, part of a package deal that she embraced with all her heart. In quick time, the three of them had become inseparable, right up until she destroyed it all. Lafour cradled the dog toy to her chest. She prodded the plush tentacles, moving her lips without saying anything. The cords in her neck strained against the flesh as she muttered to herself. Amy shot a furtive look at Kristen, an unsure grin forming. Kristen frowned, trained her gaze back on Lafour. Amy looked down. Contacting the dead was possible, if you didn't get chicken shit about the details. You might see your loved ones again if you stayed strong all the way through the process, no matter what happened. And after the seance, if it worked, there would be no going back. Please, mother, don't let me live alone any longer. Madame Lafour placed the octopus on the table in front of her, as if it were asleep, and she didn't want to wake it up. She steepled her fingers to her chin. 
Did you bring an item that belonged to your husband? Yes, it's right here. She lifted Scott's balled-up t-shirt, still spotted with blood and smelling of gas. At the sight of the stained shirt, Amy grimaced. For a second, Kristen hated her for her squeamishness. Didn't she know how serious this was? But of course she didn't. How could she? Lafour brought the shirt up to her nose. Very good. Then we'll waste no more time. She snaked her arms across the table. Join hands. Everything will be okay. Amy gave Kristen's hand a squeeze. Kristen squeezed back. Please, mothers. Let's begin. Madame Lafour sucked in a sharp breath, then blew out the candle. Afterward, Kristen and Amy stood outside. The wind banged Madame Lafour's sign against the side of her building with a violent persistence. It was worth a shot. I'm glad you... We went through with it. Kristen stared past her, her thoughts as chaotic as a kicked hornet's nest. Without warning, Amy lunged across the sidewalk and wrapped Kristen in a bear hug. Kristen hugged back, but all she wanted was some kind of sign that the seance had worked, that her faith in the mothers of the hungry mouth wasn't another false hope. She felt a weak warmth beginning to radiate from the depths of her coat pockets. Her muscles seized. She let go of Amy and reached down, grabbed the mouse and the finch in her hands, felt the pulsing heat circulate through her palms, out along her fingers, slithering up her wrists towards her heart. Nothing else mattered except being back with Scott and Harley. I'm so sorry he's gone, but it's not your fault. Kristen wiggled out of Amy's embrace. They're gone, you mean. What? Harley died too, not just Scott. Kristen tightened her grip around the warming bodies, feeling the outline of teeth, the tight spool of her husband's hair. Being honest felt good for a change. She was sick of the constant emotional pantomime she performed for other people, like it was her job to make everybody else feel at ease with her sadness, with the never-ending grief, with her fucking guilt. Amy's lips quivered. Don't say that, Kay. But Kristen hardly heard her. All thanks to the mothers of the hungry mouth. That night, Kristen crawled around on the rough floorboards of her living room. A cluttered pyramid of furniture, tables, and rolled-up carpet towered against the wall to her left. As she worked, the analog hiss of the trees filtered in from outside. Thunder bellowed in the distance. Three candles provided some light. Dipping her hands into a pot containing a pasty gray mixture of Scott and Harley's combined remains, she drew the symbol of the hungry mother on the wood, a broken capital F, with both arms jointed at their midpoints, angled upward, like a bisected wingless dragonfly. The symbol took up most of the living room floor. The finch and the mouse rested in the center, swaddled in Scott's blood-stained t-shirt. The fact that they were no longer warm worried her, but she steamrolled forward. Slowing down meant reckoning with the doubt, and that wouldn't help her stay strong. 
Kristen kept those negative thoughts at bay, forced them back out into the void of her subconsciousness. Love and compassion were only being transformed, not forgotten. On her knees, Kristen stretched forward from the edge of the symbol until she touched the cold, inert bodies of the finch and the mouse at the center. Her muscles burned from the strain, but she held firm, kept her position. Please, Mother, eat away this pain. She waited. Outside, the wind battered against the window. Please, Mother, eat away this pain. She perked her ears, listening for telling signals beneath the building storm, the thunderbursts, the rain patter. Nothing but the storm answered. She repeated the plea to the hungry mother again. She kept repeating it over and over until her mouth went dry and her voice cracked. After the better part of an hour had passed, she realized she had been duped again. Therapy, drugs, friends, family, church, music, gardening, sex, books, drinking, all of it added up to nothing except more despair, laughing at her for her futile efforts. When she had discovered the mothers of the hungry mouth and all the many things they promised to their devoted, she considered them the last stop before suicide. And now they had failed her too. Please, mothers, goddamn you. The back door creaked open. Kristen stood as if shocked by a cattle prod. Muscles burning, she waited in the unsure quiet as rain and wind rushed into the kitchen. A cloying odor filled the living room, jogging loose a girlhood memory of ancient Saturdays, images of her father in the garage cleaning an elk after a good day's hunt. That slit belly reek. Hello? Behind the wall that separated the living room and the kitchen, something scuttled across the linoleum toward the kitchen doorway. Any moment now, her new life would begin. The beacons had worked. The hosting bodies had surrendered, gave themselves over to stronger-willed souls. Baby. A dark shape stepped into the doorway, black over black. Tall, thin, female, but broken and jagged in an unsettling way, as if the limbs contained extra joints, like a human-sized praying mantis. How could a body that ruined stand upright of its own volition? Never mind that. Kristen knew the mother's talents were on full display here. The burst intestinal stench grew more potent, hung heavy and thick in the air. Kristen swallowed hard against her revulsion. You're here. Tears welled up and blurred her vision. She wiped them away even though they were the first time she felt anything akin to joy in years. She wanted to be clear-eyed for what happened next. She reached down and grabbed the t-shirt swaddling the finch and the mouse. The temperature plummeted. With a sharp inhale, Kristen shuddered, hunched up her shoulders. Her skin prickled. White gusts of breath escaped her lungs. To her left, the large bay windows frosted over, crackling and groaning like a frozen lake in the dead of winter as ice fingers crept across the panes. Step into the light, baby, so I can see you. Kristen waved the shape into the room, taking slow, careful steps forward, trying to guide her guest to the center of the symbol. 
The mantis shape took a stilted, toddler step into the meager candlelight. And then, there she was, all doubt removed. Madame Lafour, dressed in a thin paisley robe over a nightgown shift. The clothes hung off her jutting limbs like a flannel shirt on a scarecrow. Her equine features were stretched down into a confused frown. Her cataract eyes flitted in their cratered sockets like flies trapped under a glass, wild and unfocused. She cocked her head from side to side. The movement made a sound that brought to mind pulling innards from a Thanksgiving turkey. Across her neck and chest, several weeping scratch marks sucked the nightgown against LaFour's torso in dark splotches. Something fighting to get in. That's right, my love. Come to me. Arms outstretched, Madame Lafour stumbled to the center of the symbol, her mouth opening and closing like a fish suffocating at the end of a dock. Kristen needed to finish the final step, the last piece that would make Scott whole and bring him back to her for good. Not perfect, not without some major trade-offs, but so what? People adapted to severe situations all the time. Life came with drastic changes. And anyway, this was everything she wanted. She unfurled the mouse from the t-shirt, then dropped the finch on the floor next to her. She held the shrunken rodent in her outstretched palm, offering it to LaFour. She lifted it to LaFour's drifting eyes. LaFour's gaze narrowed, focusing in on the mouse. Drawn to it, she stepped to the center of the symbol. Kristen held the mouse under her nose. Then, sliding to LaFour's left, she slid her hand behind her neck, grabbed a handful of the medium's thick black hair. She pulled her head back, forcing her mouth open. That's it, baby. Kristen used the heel of her other palm to press against LaFour's chin. With a quick movement, she shoved the mouse into LaFour's mouth, prodding and forcing the mouse deeper with her fingers until it was securely wedged in her throat. This will give you your voice back. Madame Lafour gagged and scraped at her throat, caught between whether or not to expel the mouse or finish swallowing it down. Kristen clamped her hand over the biting mouth, sealing it tight. Finish, baby. That's the only way that we can be together. Her eyes bulging, Lafour finished working the mouse down. The bulge moved down her gullet as she fought against Kristen's cupped hand. And then Lafour finished swallowing. Satisfied, Kristen released her. Lafour staggered back into the wall. Kristen backed off, breathing hard. It occurred to her that she hadn't breathed through the whole ordeal. Lafour studied Kristen with a dull, sullen gaze. When Kristen started to say something, Lafour began to spasm. The medium clenched her teeth, pointed her chin towards the ceiling. Her arms locked rigid against her body, teeth smashed together with an echoing crack. She vibrated like that electrocuted elephant in the Edison film. Kristen fell on her ass, crab crawled backwards. Then, as quick as it started, Lafour quit shaking. Her body relaxed and she slumped against the wall, head drooped to her chest. The candle flames flickered green for a moment. Kristen pushed herself off the ground. Baby? 
Lafour lifted her head. Her eyes had gone black as beetle wings, no pupils showing at all. Then Lafour spoke. I'm not supposed to be here. Scott's voice, strained and forced up through shredded vocal cords, but it was unmistakably his voice. Scott! Kristen went to Lafour, tears bursting through the dam. I brought you back, Scott. She wrapped her arms around Lafour's neck and pulled her to her chest, hugging the old woman's jagged, insectile frame. Somewhere outside, someone screamed. Tires squealed. Kristen registered the sound, but only as a faraway concern. Nothing immediate worth noting. A blip on the radar. Scott spoke again through Lafour's slack mouth. His voice trembled. I'm not supposed to be here. You are, baby. You died. You and Harley. I'll explain everything. Don't worry. With no warning, Lafour shoved Kristen across the room with such force she flew against the wall and cracked the back of her head. She fell to the ground, boneless. Scott's voice was now joined by Lafour's in some display of demonic harmony. They both sounded terrified. I'm not supposed to be here! Something scratched at the door. Fresh pain spread out across the back of Kristen's head. She felt like she was on a boat. Blood dripped down her cheek. I had to bring you back. The scratching at the front door became frenzied. People were shouting in the street. Was that a child crying? The front door shook violently in its frame, started warping in the middle. The wood groaned and started splintering. The lock and the hinges whined as metal gave way to whatever wanted inside. Kristen struggled to stand. We'll be a family again. The front door exploded into the entryway, spewing a storm of shrapnel against the coat closet. A crumpled form on all fours tumbled in after it, scrabbling on the tile to right itself. The whole house shook with the force of the entry. A police siren wailed in the distance. Another siren countered that one. More voices joined the shouting in the street, angrier now. Then, charging up the steps, huffing like a deranged animal, came Amy, her body as twisted and jagged as Lafour's. She wore a ragged t-shirt and sweats. Ravaged by the weather, the clothes were filthy and drenched with mud and red. Flecks of gore flecked her hair and face. She left a trail of bloody footprints on the carpet. I'm not supposed to be here! Amy reached the top of the stairs and screamed with such intensity that Kristen cowered and dropped to the floor, guarding her head with her arms. Amy spider-crawled next to Scott, eyeing Kristen with pure hatred, crouched as though preparing to launch herself. Kristen balled herself up. She wanted to believe there was still time to make it right. They just needed to adjust. They all needed time. Harley? It's me. She tried to see Scott and Harley in the broken, stolen bodies, but she couldn't see anything but the lie she told herself. She believed in a lie, and then she made that lie come true. I can fix this. In the background, the sirens grew closer. No, you can't. 
Scott and LaFour's voices were gone, a new one took their place. It hissed like a gas leak, slow and steady. Who are you? <laughs> what used to be LaFour snickered and picked up the finch and held it above Amy's head. She tossed the finch into the air and Amy jumped up and snatched it and dropped to the ground and tore it to pieces, wolfing it down, dog teeth and all. When Amy raised her head, her eyes were as shiny and black as LaFour's. The thing in LaFour's body moved so quickly it had Kristen by the throat before she even registered what was happening. She tried to take in a breath, but it squeezed her throat closed, making breathing impossible. Kristen tried to look away, but the LaFour thing squeezed harder, lifting her off the ground, forcing her gaze forward. Quiet screams emanated from inside LaFour's body. They sounded like they were coming from far away, in pain and begging for mercy. They sounded like Scott and Madame Lafour. Scott, God, no, please. Necrotic veins branched up what was once Lafour's neck. Black eyes swiveled in gray jelly. A look of sinister intelligence spread across this new creature's smile. Kristen's lungs burned for oxygen. A dull corona formed at the edges of her field of vision. Something in her throat collapsed with a crunch. She knew then that she would die. And now she had killed Scott and Harley again. Had damned Madame Lafour and Amy to something unspeakable. Kill me! Then as the sirens blared and the cop cars skidded into the driveway, the thing inside Lafour released Kristen's throat. She crumpled to the ground in a pile of limbs, gulping for air. The Amy creature smiled so wide, its lips stretched past their breaking point, and the flesh split, revealing the molars. We should be here. But now that we are, I believe we will cause some mischief. Without so much as another glance at Kristen, the two of them walked down the stairs and out the front door. Gagging, Kristen crawled toward the kitchen, smearing the symbol across the carpet in her wake. The sound of gunfire filled the air. And when that stopped, the real screaming began. Sometimes you need to get away from it all. Just take a break, clear your head, and disappear off into the wilderness. Just peace, quiet, serenity. Ah, sorry, where was I? Ah, yes. But in this tale, shared with us by author Elias Witherow, all those wonderful-sounding things have a dark, dangerous side. Which is fair, really, when you're talking about being in the middle of nowhere. But one can dream. Performing this tale are Kyle Akers, Mick Wingert, 
Jesse Cornett, Sarah Thomas, Graham Rowett, Jeff Clement, and Nicole Goodnight. So next time you need to go find yourself, try doing it in a place where you can't get so easily lost, like a bustling city or a quaint village. Maybe don't pick a place where your only guide is the rope on the mountain. I went camping a few weeks ago. I wanted to be alone after my recent breakup and thought some quiet time with nature would help clear my head. I picked a mountain at random in New Hampshire. I'm not going to tell you which one. Honestly, I can't remember. It took that from me. I drove up on a Friday and started my hike around noon. I made it about halfway to the top and found a good place to pop my little tent. I set up camp and gathered some wood for a fire. It was cold, but I didn't mind. It felt good and cleared my head. By the time I finished setting up, it was dark. I turned on my electric lantern and set to work starting a fire. Soon I had a couple logs crackling and I sat close, rubbing my hands together and listening to the silence. Getting lost in my thoughts, I wondered why I hadn't seen anyone else today. It was an odd time to go hiking, but I thought I'd see at least one or two other people. It didn't matter, I was content to be left alone. Eventually I ate a late dinner and decided to turn in for the night. The cold was making me sleepy and I figured if I went to bed a little early, I could get an early start. Burying myself under a pile of sleeping bags, I drifted off to sleep. It didn't last long. Sometime around two in the morning, something woke me up. At first I wasn't sure what it was, the noise faint and muffled. It sounded far away, but it was enough to break the silence of the night. I rubbed my eyes and sat up, straining my ears. What was that? And then it hit me. People were singing happy birthday. I unzipped my tent and stuck my head out into the darkness. Yeah, that's exactly what it was. It was coming from way out in the woods, the notes creeping between the black trees towards me. It was strange and a little creepy hearing that out there in the middle of nowhere. I listened for a few more seconds, noticing how sad it sounded. There was no joy in the voices I heard, none of the usual birthday glee. It sounded like a funeral song, dreary and slow. After a few seconds, the people stopped singing. And then they started over from the beginning. Creeped out and slightly confused, I zipped up my tent and buried myself under my sleeping bags again. I covered my head to block out the noise, shutting my eyes and willing sleep to come. I couldn't hear the voices anymore. I swallowed hard, trying not to think about it. Trying not to think about how my birthday was the next day. I eventually fell asleep, the cold closing my eyes and pulling me down into the darkness of slumber. The next day I rose early and decided I'd keep my camp where it was. I pulled out my small pack and loaded it with supplies for a day hike. I wanted to hike to the top and stay there a few hours with the intent to hike back to my camp before dark. 
The trail was a little rough, in obvious need of some grooming, but I enjoyed the challenge. I stopped a few times, about once an hour, to catch my breath and snack on some trail mix. Eventually, I broke through the tree line, and after another hour of hard hiking, I made it to the summit. Once I was up there, I was again surprised to find myself alone. Not a soul to be seen in any direction. I found a good place to sit down and ate while scanning the majestic view around me. A cold wind cut into my coat and I pulled my hood up. I shut my watering eyes and rested my head against the rock I was sitting against. I fell asleep. When I awoke, I didn't know what time it was, but the sun was going down. Dark splashes of infected purple bled across the sky. The wind was even colder, my whole body shivering against it. I rubbed my arms together as I watched the sun wink out behind the distant mountains. I had maybe half an hour to make it back to my camp before total darkness. That wasn't nearly enough time. I didn't know what to do, torn between staying or trying my luck on the trail. I was afraid I'd freeze to death if I stayed, afraid I'd break my neck if I left. After much internal debate, I sat back down. I had to tough it out and hope I'd make it. I was scared. I pulled my arms into my sleeves and wrapped them around my body. I curled up on the stones and pulled the hood over my head, cutting my view down to a thin line. I don't know how long I laid there until I noticed it. It was off to my left, about ten feet from me on the edge of my vision. It was a birthday cake. It sat on the rocks with a single lit candle stuck in it. The flame danced in the wind, threatening to extinguish. I sat up, my heart thundering. I looked around in the darkness, prodding the shadows with my eyes, searching for whomever had left it there. Nothing. It was full dark now, a sliver of cold moon hanging in the sky like a bright smile, like it was in on the joke. Even with the light it cast, I didn't see anyone or anything. All the shadows were frozen in place waiting out the night like I was. I slowly crawled over to the cake and I looked down at it. The flame was holding on to the wick for its dear life, the wind viciously trying to tear it away. The frosting was white, the cream hardening in the open air. There was something written on it, something in red. You are dead. I backed away, suddenly feeling very exposed. I didn't want to stay here anymore. I had to try to make it back to my tent. I stood up, teeth chattering, and noticed my day pack was gone. I spun around, convinced I had just misplaced it, but it was nowhere to be seen. Scared and frustrated, I started back down towards the nearest cairn. I stumbled in the darkness, each step a prayer. I squinted against the shadows, trying to see the formation of stone beneath my feet. As I made it the hundred yards to the first cairn, I tripped and went sprawling, smacking my face against the indifferent rocks. I felt my upper lips split and my nose crunch as I made contact. Warmth flowed down my chin as I blinked back stars, sucking in sharp breaths on the ground. As I got up, legs shaking, I wiped a thick trail of blood from my face. I was dizzy, the blood chilling in the wind and crusting on my chin and hand. 
I ran my tongue along my lip and felt where it split. I winced. I should have known I couldn't make it. Not even off the top of the mountain, and I had almost brained myself dead. I wiped the rest of my face clean and took a few deep breaths to steady myself. I looked up from the cairn, which was next to a steep drop-off, and noticed something else. The mountain had grown. I shook my head, convinced I was just seeing things wrong in the moonlight, but I wasn't. As I looked out onto the vast mountain landscape, I noticed that the peaks of all the other mountains were far below the summit on which I stood. And that hadn't been the case a few hours ago. It was as if the mountain had shot up another couple hundred feet, rising silently through the dark sky. How could that be, though? It didn't make any sense. Nothing about the night made sense. Not knowing what to make of my new discovery, I ran my hands over my body, checking for any serious injuries from my fall. I seemed to be intact. I looked around the bald expanse of rock, feeling the wind slice into me like a razor. It was then that I wondered if I was going to die out here. My fingers were numb from the cold. My blue lips trembled and I didn't know what to do. I'd already fallen once, but I had to keep going. The wind was going to kill me. I wouldn't last all night if I didn't find some shelter. I told myself to just be careful, take it one step at a time. If I kept my body moving, I could at least generate some heat. I squinted in the moonlight, trying to make out the next cairn, the pile of rocks that marked the trail. Even with the moon, I didn't see it, but I remembered the general direction. Taking a deep breath, I started moving again. It was agony, working my way off the summit. I battered my knees and hands countless times, my feet doing their best to hold traction. The wind was relentless smacking me in the face with an open fist. I almost fell to my death a few times, but my quick reflexes kept me seconds ahead of the end. I was breathing heavily, my frozen muscles exhausted. I don't know how long I descended, making my way to the distant tree line below. I didn't see any more cairns, and I knew I was probably lost. I didn't care at that point. I just needed to get out of the wind. It felt like no matter how many steps I took, I wasn't getting any closer to my destination. The endless plod, the careful, patient progression. I wasn't sure how much longer I could keep going. The moon seemed frozen in the sky. I looked out and saw the distant mountaintops still far below. I checked my watch and saw that it was 2 a.m. I'd been walking for two hours now. I'm never going to make it, I thought blew into my frozen hands, trying vainly to warm them. Just keep walking. Don't stop. You're dead if you stop. I continued my descent. I figured it was four hours or so until sunrise. I just had to make it until then. I shuddered. There was no way I was going to make it four hours. And that's when I saw it. It was about 50 feet down to my right, nestled against an outcrop of rock formations a tent. I breathed a sigh of relief. I was saved. There was even a small fire crackling beside it, sheltered from the wind by the stones. I forced myself not to run, continuing the snail-paced descent towards it. I wasn't alone up here. I wasn't going to die. As I approached it, with the light from the fire casting shadows on the tent, I paused, 
I was about five feet from it, the wind partially blocked by a stone wall on my right. I took a step closer, cautious. I heard something from inside. It sounded like someone sucking in big, wet lungfuls of air. And then the tent started shaking, violently. I froze, heart thundering, fear creeping up my spine. The sound of the person inside continued. Desperate, urgent breaths sucked down into mucus-coated lungs. The tent kept shaking, the plastic and nylon vibrating as if whatever inside was having a seizure. Then I felt a tremor run through the stone under my feet. I quickly caught my balance, steadying myself, terrified and confused. What the hell was happening? After a few seconds, the mountain calmed, along with the tent. It was silent except for the wind. I took a few uncertain breaths, desperate to warm myself by the fire. I eyed the tent, preparing myself to speak. The flap to the tent unzipped just a few inches. I felt my body lock, and my eyes widened, my mind suddenly screaming that I was in danger. A voice came from the opening, a wet, deep whisper. stumbling and tripping, bruising my body in a desperate need to get away. My heart pounded in my chest, confusion and panic pulsing through my bloodstream. The air tore at my face, trying to rip it away with frozen claws. I raced towards the trees. They were closer now than I thought, each fumbled step bringing me nearer. I didn't know what was going on. It didn't understand what was happening. There was something very wrong with the mountain, and I desperately needed to find my way off of it. My limbs were shaking by the time I crashed through the trees. I had countless scrapes and bruises running up and down my body, a testament to my hurried descent. Blood dried quickly in the cold air, and I felt patches of it gripping my skin along my arms. I stopped, now in the sanctuary of the trees, and sucked in hungry lungfuls of air. I placed a hand over my chest and willed my heart to slow. I licked my cracked lips and rolled my head up to stare at the sky, catching my breath. What was that? I thought, fear filling me. What was in that tent? After a few minutes, I assessed my surroundings and began walking. I didn't know where I was. A nagging panic crouched in my subconscious, but I knew going down was good. My knees trembled as my feet took me carefully through the woods. My eyes had adjusted slightly to the darkness, but now that I was under the cover of trees, my vision was severely limited. I mentally crossed my fingers with each step, my fatigued limbs flopping with exhaustion. I focused on nothing but safely putting one foot in front of the other. The dark pressed in around me. The trees swayed overhead as the wind shook them, the sound filling my ears like high tide. Just as I was starting to become optimistic, something changed around me. Noises. Quiet at first, and and slowly growing in volume. I stopped, one foot planted on a downed tree in front of me. I swung my head around, eyes growing wide, throat clenching with fear. Something was crashing through the woods, headed right for me. Judging by the cacophony of snapping branches and crushed foliage, it was only 20 or 30 yards away, and closing quickly. Making a split-second decision, I hopped over the log and rolled against it, 
wedging my body in as far as I could. I grabbed an armful of dirt, twigs, and dead leaves and pulled them towards me to cover my body. I waited, heart crunching against my ribs with violent terror. The crashing had almost reached me. It was deafening now. I swallowed hard and squeezed my eyes shut. Suddenly something huge and white flowed over the log, passing over me at an alarming speed. It crashed into the underbrush in front of me and then disappeared, leaving trails of cold fog behind it. I didn't move, paralyzed with fear. I listened to the sound of the thing diminish, the night returning to its dark soundtrack. I exhaled. What the hell was that? It didn't hold any form, just passed me in a blur of faded mist. I was beginning to question my sanity. Things were happening outside of the realm of possibility. The weird cake on the summit, the unexplainable growth of the mountain, the voice in the tent, it all came crashing down around me in that moment. I felt disjointed, my reality sinking in murky chaos. Am I dead? I rolled out from the log and stood cautiously eyeing the black woods. I winced as the wind cascaded around me, slapping my battered skin with angry hands. I shivered and sunk into myself. I felt hopeless. I was impossibly lost. I didn't have a clue which direction to walk. And I was thirsty. I bent down and found a dirty pebble. I rubbed the dirt off and popped it into my mouth. I remembered hearing it, this was supposed to help. As I rolled it around on my tongue, I decided that no matter what, I wasn't going to give in to despair. I couldn't. As soon as I let that in, it was over for me. I just had to keep working towards something. I had to keep myself as positive as possible. The temptation to panic was all too present. I could feel it under my skin, screaming and thrashing to be released. I needed to start walking again. Standing around, waiting for that thing to come back, wasn't going to solve any of my problems. As I was about to go, I noticed something lying on the ground to my left, at the end of the log. I crouched down and examined it. It was a rope, about as thick as my thigh. I ran my fingers over the cords and traced it in the darkness. It was pulled taut along the forest floor and ran off into the woods, lost over the horizon of my vision. I felt a pang of hope. This rope led somewhere. Someone put this here. If I followed it, maybe I could finally get off this godforsaken mountain. My heart fluttered with newfound optimism, and I leaned down and picked up the heavy cords of nylon. I just needed to follow this out of here. I began to walk, the thick rope straining through my fingers. I noticed that it was vibrating slightly, as if the end was tied to something mechanical. As I walked, I glanced at my watch and saw that it was almost four in the morning. The sun would be up in about two hours. It felt like it had been days since I'd seen the light. I ached for the warmth the daylight would bring. The bones in my fingers seemed to crack in the cold as they gripped the rope. I swore to myself that if I ever got out of here, I was going to wear gloves for the rest of my life. My feet crunched through the foliage, brush and branches catching me at the knees. I pushed on the rope leading me deeper and deeper into the woods. The constant vibration running through it encouraged me to keep walking. 
After another 20 minutes of slow progression, the vibrations became more intense. I shifted the rope in my grip, trying to get a better hold of it. It almost seemed like electricity was flowing through it, but that was impossible. I'd be dead if that was the case. Suddenly, I stumbled forward as something jerked on the rope. I let go and went sprawling to my hands and knees, wincing as something sharp cut into my palms. What was that? I brushed my stinging hands against my pants. I stood up and picked the rope back up, cautiously loosening my grip so I wouldn't get pulled down again. The rope jerked a second time, the cords crunching as the line went taut. I was pulled forward but didn't fall, keeping my balance and steadying myself against a tree. I leaned against it, waiting for another pull, but after a couple of seconds, I assumed whatever was causing it had ceased. I hefted the rope up under my arm and was about to continue when I froze. They were all around me. Tiny black figures with eyes like hot coals. They were hovering in the air. Small puffs of darkness pulled into human shape. Some looked at me from behind trees, their glowing eyes cutting into the black. None of them moved. I felt a scream rising in my throat, but I forced it down with a hard swallow. Despite the cold, I felt sweat along my spine. The closest one was about six or seven feet away, above me to my left. It was just hovering. I scanned my surroundings and counted eight of them total. I waited for them to do something, but they remained still, painted into the night. My mind was buzzing, trying to pile together some sort of explanation as to what I was seeing. The words on the birthday cake formed like a picture in my mind and I frantically pushed the image aside. Slowly, very slowly, I began to inch forward, continuing along the rope. My eyes were laser-trained on the figures, snapping between each one of them, waiting for them to react. They didn't move, only watched, as I slid between the trees away from them. I expected them to follow, maybe even charge me, but I remained the only being in motion. My head was locked over my shoulder as I passed them. I was holding my breath, begging the leaves underfoot to be silent as I crunched down over them. One step, two, five. I exhaled and took another couple steps, leaving them behind me. As I followed the rope deeper into the woods, I kept a vigilant lookout for any more of the strange beings. My mind was reeling. What were those things? The way they watched me, silent and unmoving, chilled me more than the wind. I forcefully pushed all thoughts out of my head, draining my confusion and fear like dirty water. Once I was safe, I could dwell on these questions, but for now, I just needed to get out of here. The rope continued to wind along the mountain, sometimes going down, other times leading back up. I had no idea how far I'd come. After a while, I fell into a rhythm. Take three steps, adjust my grip on the rope, look around, take another three steps. I felt like I was in a trance, my mind a blank space between my ears. There was nothing that existed except the mountain and the wind. I realized that one could never get used to walking in the cold. It chilled me as much as it had at the top of the mountain. Walking was the only thing that kept my joints from locking up, frozen in excruciating pain. 
I felt like if I stopped, I would just lay down and let fate have its way with me. The thought scared me. The temptation and ease of just giving up. I realized I still had the pebble in my mouth. I spit it out and ran my tongue along my lips. What I wouldn't give for a sip of water. A blast of wind through the trees sent my teeth chattering again, and I slowed my pace and squeezed my eyes shut against it. My legs were trembling, rattled by the icy assault, my knees knocking together like two swollen walnuts. The air settled, and I sped up. Would anyone come looking for me if I didn't make it out of here? How long would I last if this rope led to nothing? What would I do then? I shook my head in the darkness, trying not to let despair overcome me. One thing at a time. First, let's see where this leads, then go from there. I needed to focus on solving one thing at a time. Get to the end of the rope. I noticed that it was still vibrating, a strange hum running up the cords and across my hands. No sooner had I noticed than the rope jerked again. It caught me off guard and I fell, crashing down onto rocks and dead branches. Cursing, I got to my hands and knees, amazed I hadn't done any major damage to my body. What the hell was doing that? I glanced at my palms in the moonlight, assessing the new scratches and cuts. I took a moment, filling my lungs with air, and then continued. The underbrush stuck to my pant legs, snagging and slowing me any chance it got. The ground was uneven and rocky as I crossed the ungroomed terrain. My feet were aching each step sending a pulse of pain up my legs. The rope twisted its way between trees, around rock formations, and across thick foliage. I began to wonder if it went on forever. Between the noises of night, I began to hear something else. At first, I thought it was my mind playing tricks on me, but the more I walked, the more I was sure. Running water. I started walking a little faster, as much as I dared in the dark my mouth a dry sponge. The thick rope trickled through my fingers as I went, taking me closer and closer to the sound. My tongue felt like it was made of cotton balls, the distant splashing causing the sensation to worsen. My breath rattled out of dry lungs, exhaling what felt like mouthfuls of sand. I begged myself to slow. If I hurt myself now, it was over. With every step I prayed, I wouldn't roll my ankle. I just needed a drink of water. That would make everything so much better. It was close now, the flow of water on rocks filling the night. A few minutes later, I found it. It was a fairly large stream, maybe five feet wide. The rope led across it, floating perpendicular on the surface. I dropped to my knees and sank my face below the surface, shaking with excited relief. The water was shockingly cold as I submerged my lips, pulling in sweet mouthfuls of nature's blood. I pulled my head up, sputtering and coughing as I choked. I took a few breaths, forcing myself to calm down, and then lowered myself and continued to drink. What are you doing here? I jumped and went sprawling, startled by the sudden voice. I stared around in the darkness, searching for the source. My heart galloped in my chest, and my eyes went wide with shock. A man stood across the stream, staring at me. He looked to be middle-aged, a trim beard lining his face. He was wearing jeans and a white t-shirt that rippled in the wind. If the cold bothered him, he didn't show it. I pulled myself up, relief rocking me. I was saved. 
The nightmare was over. What are you doing here? I bumbled at first, the overwhelming relief jamming the words in my throat. I calmed myself and then began to recount my horrible experience since I had arrived. I told him about the singing, the cake, the tent, the strange black shapes with glowing eyes, everything. He remained silent as I spoke. After a moment, he responded. You're not supposed to be here. I blinked in the moonlight, confused, and explained to him that I was lost. I told him that I had found this rope and had been following it, hoping it led to something. His eyes darted to the rope at my feet, and his tone hardened. You've been following that? I nodded and began to feel uneasy. There was something off with this guy. I didn't know if it was the way he dressed or the way his voice seemed to carry on the wind. He seemed completely passive until I mentioned the rope, and now his brow was furrowed and his face creased in hostility. He began to shake his head. Turn around. Go the other way. You don't belong here. I threw my hands up, mouth agape. I told him that there was nothing back there, that I needed help, that I was lost. I pointed down the rope and told him that following this was my best chance to find a way out. His face grew shadows in the moonlight, and his voice turned to frozen steel. Listen to me. You do not want to know what's the other end of that rope. I stood there, a response caught in my throat. I closed my mouth and looked down at my feet, eyeing the corded fibers. What was he talking about? I looked up at him and saw he was watching me closely. I wanted to ask him a million questions, get some answers to the nightmares I'd seen tonight. I wanted to know who he was and where he came from. I wanted to know what was in the end of the rope. I wanted to know how to get out of here. But they dissolved on my tongue, leaving only the one question that had been hovering over my head since this all began. I swallowed hard. Am I dead? He cocked his head, a smile dancing at the corners of his mouth. You're the only thing on the mountain that isn't. His words confirmed what I already feared. I shuffled my feet, watching the water run by. Silence grew between us. I didn't know what to say. I was afraid of the answers I would get. He broke the emptiness first. It wants to keep you here. My eyes met his again. What does? Mountain? He nodded, stepping towards me and placing a foot on the rope. You said the mountain appeared to grow. Doesn't want you to leave. For whatever reason, you were able to find this place and walk among us. Now it doesn't want to let you go. Can I... Can I escape this place? He sighed and took another step closer, his feet splashing into the stream. Yes. But you better hurry. I don't know how much longer you have before you join us. 
We've already learned so much about you. There are those who would rather you stayed. My heart was beating hard in my chest and my voice came out in a whisper. What is this place? He was standing in the middle of the stream now, getting closer. It's where the dead go when they have no place above or below. He took another step towards me and I saw his eyes go red. And we can never leave. This mountain is our eternity. I took a step back, almost tripping over the rope at my feet. But why not? If I, if I can go, why can't you? He was standing mere feet from me now. He pointed down the length of the rope. If you saw what was at the other end, you would understand. We are kept here. No hope for us. We're dead. He smiled suddenly, but it held no humor. Maybe one day you'll come back to us. Maybe there'll be no room for you above or below. Maybe you'll get sent here. He was inches from me now, his voice grating up his throat. Maybe then you'll get to see what this is tied to. He bent down and picked up the rope, holding it out to me. Take it. I hesitated, rooted where I stood by uncertainty and fear. I didn't want to take it, didn't want to look at it. I saw it vibrating in his hands, the dirty cords shaking in the dying moonlight. He offered the rope to me again. Take it. Follow it back the way you came. Trust me. Be out of the woods before the sun comes up. I licked my lips and took the rope, trying to find honesty in the man's eyes. That, that doesn't make sense. It'll be light in less than an hour. I've been following this thing all night. His eyes shined in the darkness. Trust me. It's the only chance you have. I don't know why I believed him, but I did as he said. And he was right. Just as the sun peeked out over the mountaintops, I stumbled out of the woods, battered, beaten, and exhausted. I dropped the rope and fell to my knees, relief drowning me as I spotted my car. I couldn't believe it. I had made it out. I looked over my shoulder and saw the rope disappear into the foliage, slowly being pulled back by some unseen force. I shivered. What the fuck had I just lived through? Who was that man and why did he help me? At that moment, I didn't care. I just wanted to get away from this goddamn mountain. I stumbled into my car and pulled the keys out from under the seat, fingers trembling. I started my car and pulled away. I felt tears run down my cheek, and 
realized that I was surprised to be alive. I'm still haunted by that trip. I'll never forget the fear and the horror I was exposed to. I haven't set foot in any woods since then, and I don't think I will be anytime soon. One thing that still scares me, though, it was what the man said. Maybe you'll get sent here. I started going to church, those words driving me to my knees and seeking comfort in religion. I don't care what I have to do, what kind of sacrifices I need to make. I'll do anything so I don't have to go back to that mountain. I'll do anything so I don't have to see what's at the end of that rope. There are certain cultural touchstones for which people cannot seem to avoid being masochistic. For example, licking a 9-volt battery, or attending high school reunions, or reading the comments. And in this tale, shared with us by author Themis Carey, it may be especially masochistic to attend this particular high school reunion, but at least the intrigue makes it understandable. Performing this tale are Mary Murphy, Matthew Bradford, and Atticus Jackson. So keep the seed of doubt in your mind, but maybe you'll see yourself reflected on your former classmates' glass faces. I was invited to my high school's 20th reunion. At first, I thought it was some kind of macabre joke. It seemed like a lot of effort to go through for a mere prank, though. The invitation was good, heavy cardstock, the elegant calligraphy done up in a metallic ink. That got me thinking that maybe it was more of a memorial, something for the families and survivors. It was being held at the former location of the school, which was a lovely botanical garden now that seemed classy, sweet. The notation at the bottom specified that it was a black tie event, which only reinforced my misconception. I decided to go. It was being held in the early afternoon, so I had to leave work a little early. But when I explained what it was for, my boss didn't have any issue letting me go. As I grabbed my sweater to head home to change, he just told me to be careful and to call someone when I got there. He was a nice guy. He worried about his employees, especially with the rash of disappearances in town. Everyone knew someone who knew someone who had vanished. Police were stumped. Not because they were small town and idiotic, but because there seemed not to be any evidence to go on. Nothing. No blood, no bodies, no witnesses. Honestly, it was the last thing on my mind. It was broad daylight, 
and a beautiful autumn day. The sunlight came through the trees a heady amber honey color. The birds were singing, and I could smell the perfume of the flowers the minute I stepped out of the car. It was a perfect day for a memorial. I thought it was a little odd when I didn't see any other cars in the parking lot, but I figured I must have parked on the wrong side of the building. Maybe they'd all come in the back way. Seemed reasonable given that the arboretum was technically closed. I found the door unlocked, and a chalkboard sign inside welcoming everyone to the reunion in elegant calligraphy. Reunion, it said. I remember that specifically. Class of 2000. I could hear laughter and soft music coming from a pair of doors down the hallway and followed them, feet whispering on the thin, stiff carpet. The building smelled of slightly stale perfume and old wine, in opposition to the fresh, floral scent outside. The yellowish light of the hallway painted the doors an unhealthy color, akin to mozzarella cheese. For some reason, I expected them to be soft when I touched them, squishy and damp almost. But they were cool and solid when I pressed my palms against them and swung inward quietly to reveal the crisp, vibrant colors of the greenhouse on the other side. Huge lilies pointed their curling petals toward the sky. Irises and freesia bunched together along the walkways. There was a neat brick path leading into a clearing near the center where a fountain burbled pleasantly. I caught a glimpse of people down there and stepped into the room, letting the doors swing shut behind me. Ferns kept me from getting a good look until I was nearly on top of them. The best I got were hints of gowns and crisp suits and the occasional glass of punch. Everyone sounded so cheerful, though. It seemed a little macabre to be celebrating at a memorial, but I couldn't blame people for being so glad to see each other again. All those happy, charitable thoughts fell right out of my head when I reached the end of the path and saw them all. Confusion took over, and then eventually horror. They all had glass faces. Every one of them. The woman in the pink cocktail dress standing next to the man in the pale purple shirt. The three girls gathered next to the fountain holding glasses of punch. The men in the corner. They had normal features. Eyes, a nose, a mouth but carved out of the same pale green glass champagne bottles came in. All of them looked like they were wearing masks, except there was nothing behind them. Well, not nothing, exactly. There was dirt, damp, dark dirt, and small withered flowers, just the one in each of them standing like burnt filaments and light bulbs. And yet they were still talking, laughing. Their mouths weren't moving, but I heard their voices clear as day. And they were lifting their glasses to their lips as if they could taste the punch inside of them. A feeling of intense horror washed over me the moment I recognized the girls near the fountain. The glass had thrown me off, but this was earth-shattering. Lindsay, Rebecca, and April... 
three best friends who had been absolutely inseparable in life. They were so close that their families had opted for joint funerals. My hand jumped to my stomach. For an instant, I thought I was going to be ill, or pass out, or both. Every breath I took rattled in my throat, which felt hot and tight. My eyes watered, flipping from one face to the next, and recognizing every one of them. Jordan. One of the guys lifted a hand in greeting. Hey, we didn't think you'd make it to this one. I knew him too. Noah, my first boyfriend. He lowered the cup of punch in his sickingly normal hand. You're a little early, aren't you? Heads turned in my direction, the light gleaming off and through their glass skulls. They had hair. Normal, regular hair. I bit my lip to choke down a sob. The flower. I knew that voice, too. All the hair on my body stood on end. The way the person gurgled. He'd always done that. It was an affectation. He didn't have to gurgle. He did it deliberately, because he knew it bothered people. The hand on my stomach curled into a fist. I didn't want to look, but I did. There he was, dressed in a frayed hoodie and jeans with holes in the knees. His face was glass too, but dirty and cracked. I could barely see the thing inside of it. It looked like a briar bush. All thorny, twisted vines. Dustin. It didn't seem right to see him here. With all of his victims. He belonged, well, in hell. If anyone deserved it, it was Dustin. Sick son of a bitch had gotten what he deserved. I heard his parents hadn't even claimed his remains. As far as I knew, they'd left his ashes in that box, probably sitting in the back of a coroner's office, or dumped with all the other unwanteds. You're alive. He came from the back, where the ferns were thickest, and circled around the fountain. I backed away instinctively. The others shrunk away as well, huddling together, trying to hide. I tasted something thick and sour in the back of my throat. Tasted like copper. I can fix that easy enough. A few petals came down off one of the flowering trees. They passed between us, and for a moment they were embers. His glassy eyes caught the light and held it, burning feverishly bright. I ran. My former classmates began to shriek and sob. I lost sight of them through the ferns and foliage, sprinting in a dead panic to the doors I'd come from. But they were locked when I arrived, and had transformed. I recognized the old cafeteria doors, but not until I'd already tried to grab them. They were so hot that I burned my hands immediately. I ripped them off and stumbled back, shouting involuntarily, just in time. Flames shot up beyond the narrow windows. The bottom of the doors were turning black and warping outward. This isn't real. This isn't real. This isn't real. Some part of me gibbered in the back of my mind. This couldn't be happening. Soot and ash started to fall from the ceiling. 
I choked on the smoke and threw myself to the ground. My hands flashed with searing agony every time they touched the rough bricks. But I was in full survival mode. I crawled into the foliage, opting for the shortest route to the glass walls. I was picturing finding a fire escape. But what I found was a brick near the base of the wall, where the glass was charring and splintering. I picked it up in my blistered, bleeding hands and swung onto my knees. Melted sneakers streaked between us. I looked up into the hateful, burning gaze of the worst mass murderer my state had ever known and knew I was doomed. My lungs were already aching. Darkness was creeping in. Hopeless despair overwhelmed me. There was nothing I could do. No hope of escape. I threw the brick anyway. My arm wound back of its own accord, lashed out without my direct input. I flung it forward with all my might and fear and desperation. The brick flew through the air and smashed directly into Dustin's face with an ear-shattering pop. And then a huge, vacuuming force inhaled me. I was sucked out, as helpless as a victim of a riptide, dragged through the crater in the wall, and tossed limply into the sunlight and soft grass. At first, I was too dazed to move. My lungs ached, and my hands were still screaming. And then I just lay there and cried until my tears came away clear again instead of dingy gray. A passing jogger saw me there and called the cops. I ended up in the hospital for smoke inhalation and third-degree burns. I told them everything I knew, everything I'd seen, but I don't know whether or not they believed me. I got to go home a week later with a mostly clean bill of health. Nothing that won't heal eventually. But still, I wonder... How many people had gotten their own invitations? In our next tale, we learn a... Wait, hold on. I love this song. Jeff heard there was a secret chord That David played and it pleased the Lord But you won't get that scared by music, will ya? But in this tale by Michael Squid when you find out what Jeffrey did, you'll reconsider just how tunes can chill ya, how they'll thrill ya, how they'll kill ya, how they'll thrill ya, how they'll kill, kill. Nicole Doolin reads this tale She's joined by 
Jeff Clements as well. We've done our best to make it so it thrills ya. So settle down, it's starting soon. Scored by the maestro Brandon Boone as we turn heavenward to hear the God Chord. The God Chord. The God Chord. The God. received a peculiar invitation out of the blue from Jeffrey, an old college friend of mine from art school who I hadn't heard from in quite a while. He claimed to be on the verge of something incredible related to composition and begged me to, in his words, bear witness to history being made. He gave an address and a time to meet where he promised the drinks would flow and the food would be exquisite. Jeffrey had been a smart and funny guy, He had always made me laugh with quick-as-a-whip responses and jokes. He was a composer, a piano player in the music program who'd been the most talented in his class. I'd followed his success story after graduation. He was doing well for himself playing in the symphony orchestra, along with solo concerts. At any rate, he had me hooked with the history-being-made talk and throwing free food and drink into the mix made for an easy yes. I walked over to the wealthier part of town, where the expensive condos and luxury apartments were, and spotted his address. It was a new building, a modern design with large balconies, just a block from the park. I pressed the buzzer for apartment 4B, and after being buzzed in, rode the elevator up and walked down the hall to his apartment. His door was open and the clamor of clinking glasses and soft conversation was spilling out into the hall. I took a step inside and smiled at the small cluster of people, five others who I didn't recognize. I walked over to a table covered with assorted snacks and a few bottles of top-shelf liquor. I felt a bit awkward knowing nobody there, so I fixed a drink to embolden myself while I admired his chic apartment. Everything was brand new and spotless, And at the far end of the spacious interior was a grand piano, polished to the point that it shimmered in the light of the afternoon sun. Glad you could make it. This means a lot to me. Jeffrey's voice took me by surprise, and I spun around to face him. His appearance took me aback. It was definitely Jeffrey that stood before me, but he looked so different than he had last time I'd seen him and stranger than he appeared on the posters outside the convention center. His eyes were sunken, his eyelids purple and thin. His pupils were so dilated I'd believe he was tripping on acid, and he stared with an odd intensity. He looked absolutely insane. My pleasure. It's been forever. I took his extended hand to shake it. It felt bony, like that of an elderly man. Had he gotten sick, I wondered? Without any notice, Jeffrey plucked a champagne flute from the table and tapped a butter knife against the side. 
ringing out to silence the murmurs of his gathered guests. He rotated his head to stare into the eyes of the patrons, then walked in front of the expensive piano and faced us, unbuttoning the bottom button of his blazer in anticipation of sitting at the instrument. He looked manic, eyes bulging as he spoke with an intensity that made me uncomfortable. <clears throat> Eric Satie, Robert Schumann, Bejak Smetana, and Hans Roth all sought it out. A myth, a theory, a legend, and little else but vapors through the past few centuries. An elusive rumor occasionally whispered about after concerts. All of these composers sought out Zimmick's method, the specific combination of notes that comprise music's most elusive and magnificent composition, the God Chord. Jeffrey extended his open palms, revealing his bony fingers as he continued. Vienna, 1780. In the outer Vorstadts, a young composer named Valentin Zimmick claimed to have awoken from a dream in which he learned there was a melodic tether to God. It was a conduit, an open resonance so beautiful and awe-inspiring that it would open the doorway to heaven itself. Zimmick spent his life trying to figure out the specific combination of notes before going mad and vanishing without a trace at the age of 24. Jeffrey paused, a disturbingly wide grin taking form as he exposed his teeth. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, I have unlocked the secrets of the sought-after holy grail of composition. I have discovered the God Chord. After a few seconds of hushed whispers, people began to clap and I joined in. This was not what I had anticipated at all, but I was thoroughly intrigued, despite my concern for Jeffrey's well-being. I watched in bewilderment as a group of five men and five women entered the room. All were wearing white choir robes and were carrying music stands, clearly professional acquaintances of his. Jeffrey handed each of them a single sheet of music, and I could make out the piece on a few of the pages as he did so. On every page was a staff containing one single note. Jeffrey took a seat at the piano. Let's begin. Three of the singers hummed out a resonant melody that struck a deep awe within me. Their voices loudened, and the others joined in slowly. With every added note, the complexity grew, and the melody truly did inspire some deep-rooted feeling of divinity. It was hauntingly beautiful, but once all the voices had joined in, something felt off. I felt dizzy, my vision swimming before me. I smelled lavender, an overwhelming fragrance that appeared out of nowhere. I rested a hand on the table to secure myself as that chord seemed to shift. The same notes were being sung by the choir, yet the sounds of those notes seemed to change in a way that raised every hair on my body. It warped into a cacophony that 
tingled my spine from the strange beauty it inspired. Then, Jeffrey raised his bony hands in the air and wiggled his fingers in a show of anticipation. The room seemed to be pulsing as if it was breathing. I felt a gnawing terror in the back of my head, but I was entranced by the unearthly sound those trained voices were making. And then Jeffrey pounded the piano's keys with precision, holding them there to extend the sound. The next moments happened in slow motion. Adrenaline surged throughout my body. I felt a warm dribble under my nose and saw droplets of red on my shoes. When I looked up, the choir stood there, emitting the shifting notes, but they were not singing them. They were screaming. Rivulets of blood cascaded down their chins from their eyes and noses. The soundscape was horrific yet perfect at the same time, impossible to describe. In the peripheral of my vision, I saw things flailing about, whip-like appendages and multiple sets of inhuman eyes, wide watching orbs forming in clusters on bodies that were not there before, bodies of wrinkled gray skin the color of slate and the texture of coral. The smell of lavender had shifted to a septic stench, one of rot and bodily waste, and then the coppery stink of blood. I looked over to the other guests and screamed louder. <coughs> Viscera was everywhere. A man and a woman were foraging in the split belly of a man who moaned with pleasure while wiping his bloody hands on his face. Another well-dressed guest in a suit with a graying beard was laughing as he dug into his own eye sockets with his thumbs, spilling the pulpy gore down to stain his facial hair. Jeffrey was still at the piano, but now he was rhythmically bashing his head forward on the top edge. In the red stream that dripped down to the keys and onto the floor were white chips of what appeared to be bone. I don't know how I got out of there, Maybe I was just lucky to be closest to the door. Maybe that severe ear infection I'd had as a kid was a factor. I stumbled into the hall, vomiting a splash of crimson blood onto the carpet. I slammed open the door and fell into the stairwell before losing consciousness. I was found by the paramedics who arrived after the calls started coming in. At some point, Jeffrey had leaped off his balcony in a swan dive. Every guest and performer in the apartment had torn themselves to pieces. Yet that music did not stop. That unholy chord plays in my head every moment. Every single day, that bizarre tone swirls in my mind like a permanent stain. Sleep offers no escape. My nightmares crawl with horrors from the place that sound brought us to. A place too dark to fathom. Jeffrey was right. That arrangement of tones did open a window to a god. Just not the one we were hoping to meet.
Sometimes you're hit by such a run of bad luck that it feels like the universe is mocking you. Just so many different things that threaten to bring you down. And at moments like this, it can help to find comfort in the words of someone who's been through something similar. But in this tale, shared with us by author Kay Watts, reaching back through history to find solidarity leads to the discovery of chilling shared experiences. Performing this tale are Andy Cresswell and Dan Zapula. So let's take a journey through time and remember that horror can be found during times of war and peace. You never know when something will cost you your flesh and blood. Two thousand and nine. That is the year I came home from Afghanistan, disheartened and physically broken. I didn't want to come home. I wanted to be out in the field alongside my brothers and sisters. This may come as a surprise to some, but getting blown up limits your job opportunities. This event happened when Taliban fighters ambushed my platoon while we were traversing a narrow mountain pass in the summer of 2008. During the attack, an RPG round landed about three yards from me, and shrapnel shredded my right leg. Fortunately, my plates protected my vital organs. Still, I laid broken in desert no-man's land for hours amid an intense firefight. My platoon retrieved me and took me back to the fob afterwards. Somehow I clung to life, or at least that's what they told me. I have to take their word for it because my last lucid memory is of me waking up at a hospital in Germany. I had no clue how I had gotten there, but I wanted to go back to the action. I couldn't leave my family out there to fight the war by themselves. Hospital staff admired my determination, but my desperate pleas were of no use. I was going home. Your fight is over. You did your part with honor and valor, they told me. I spent years trying to reconcile these events in vain. I had resigned myself to never knowing why it had been me until a few days ago, when my father passed unexpectedly. His sudden death sent me into a tailspin of depression. Every day... I questioned the fragility of life and the nature of my mortality. I finally answered my questions when my wife, my uncle, and myself cleared out my father's house. Like me, he had loads of memorabilia from his generation's war. I realized that he, like me, had never let go. I couldn't blame him. The army dismissed him from service after losing his leg, much like me. Amongst his things, I found a decrepit, leather-bound journal. It appeared stained by blood. I was unfamiliar with the first name on it, though. I didn't know of a relative named Edward, but I recognized the last name as my grandmother's maiden name, Taylor. Fortunately for me, my grandmother is still alive. A few days after finding the journal, I asked her about it. Turns out, it belonged to her father. The small journal documented his time in the Great War, and he always held it very dear. 
In fact, no one else, except for my dad, had ever read it. She wasn't sure how my father came to possess it, but she told me he would have wanted me to have it. This piqued my interest. I had heard all my father's war stories, but never my great-grandfather's. I'm paraphrasing, but according to my grandmother, her father was a real badass. She told me that when he took a bullet to the leg in France, he had to self-amputate because the battalion medic died earlier in the battle. He laid on the battlefield for days until a friendly patrol finally found him narrowly clinging to life. The wild story intrigued me. Maybe by learning about him, I could better cope with my own problems. After my father's funeral service, I began reading the journal. There isn't a word I know to even begin describing the horrors contained within the log. October 17th, 1916 In any pub on the aisle, you will hear fools say hell is full of fire and brimstone. They are daft. Hell is on earth, and its disciples walk among us. Ninety-one days have passed since we arrived in this godforsaken field. Each day that passes brings the fear of starvation closer to fruition. Our battalion commander reckons the Germans outnumber us eight men to one. This means a frontal assault would be certain suicide. To make matters even more dire, the sky weeps at the horrors of this place. The constant deluge is so severe that our dead are being washed away into no man's land. A dense fog lingers upon this hell, leaving us in a constant state of bewilderment. Is it gas this time, or more damn fog? We cannot press forward, lest we march straight into death's icy embrace. So here we wait for him to come plug us from the trenches. Dysentery is sweeping through our ranks, leaving a slew of dead men. The putrid stench of decay grows more pungent with each passing day. One must stay crouched down in the muck of flood water, human gruel and excrement, or fall prey to sniper fire. The war brought affliction to the French countryside, causing all to flee their homes. This has led to packs of manged dogs roaming the land, searching for their next meal. These hellhounds roam no man's land, dragging off the dead and dying to consume. These abhorrent conditions tempt many a man to turn their weapon upon themselves. But most know there is no reprieve for the dead here. Judging from what I have seen, I can safely say that the gullet of hell is wide open, ready to devour all who approach. The four horsemen have ridden forth and now traverse this forsaken place freely claiming all who cross their path. With this said, death will not wait for long. Even if by some work of God my corporeal form makes it home, I shall never truly leave this hell. October 19th, 1916 The German shelling is ceaseless even when the horde rushes across no man's land. With flagrant disregard for their lives, they dash through the blasts and hail of lead. They rush our lines with inhuman malice, as though they do not know or fear death. 
Perhaps they are fleeing their lines, unable to bear the same conditions any longer. Perhaps running headlong into a storm of bullets is salvation for them. For now, they cannot reach us. But the tides shall soon turn. We are dangerously low on rations and ammunition. The men fear that the enemy has outflanked us and enveloped us as they now attack from east and west. Our ranks dwindle further with each setting sun. It's as though our collective life force is being consumed by the darkness that falls upon this unholy place. The battalion was 1,500 strong when we arrived here in August. We were ignorant of the horrors of war and ready to defend our homeland from the fascist horde. Now, less than a hundred of us weary and defeated men remain. Blight has swept through the ranks, leaving few alive. Our trenches have flooded to knee height, and our dead brethren float past us as we huddle for warmth, as each subsequent night becomes colder and colder. The madness doesn't end when the sun rises. Through the unwavering fog, we can see the dogs and rats feast on the flesh of the dead strewn about our ravaged lines. Many a man's feet have rotted within their boots on account of being chronically waterlogged. The stench is ungodly. Still, the one thing that rots faster than flesh air is one's sanity. Many of our men are in a state of shell shock, and suicides are becoming more routine. Still, no one has thought of desertion. Not one man amongst us wants to run the gambit of encountering the inconceivable evil which stalks no man's land. Each of us knows that death is imminent, but we shall face it together as brothers in arms. There is no reprieve here. God has forsaken us. October 27th, 1916. Delirium has set in, and I fear I may be the last man left alive. They broke the lines yesterday. Or was it today? Alas, they spilled into our lines after we depleted the last of our ammunition. Sinister-looking gas masks obscured their faces as they cut us down with bayonets and bludgeoned us with clubs. Despite fighting as hard as I could, I found myself overtaken and separated from the others. At first, I wandered in desperation as I tried to reunite with someone, anyone, to make my last stand. The river of sewage that is our trench now runs red with the viscera of my friends. It reeks of piss, shit, and burning life. I can hear the enemy clamoring in the dense fog around me. They are here. They are everywhere. What is even more unsettling is this. I now know what lurks underneath those gas masks. If the enemy was ever human, they are no longer. I tussled with one of them before ending him with a swift slash across his face from my bayonet. This cut his mask, which revealed a long-dead, decayed visage. He had only one eye, razor-sharp, broken teeth, and worms emerging from his maw. I did the only thing a rational man would do. I ran, ran hard and far until I came to a long, deserted sector of the line. The perilous fog seemed never-ending, and I couldn't see more than a meter in front of me. As I sprinted away from the lines, I prayed that I wouldn't run into one of those fiends or a mess of barbed wire. 
The slop of mud and water slowed my advance away from the line, but I was certain I was making progress. I could no longer hear the scuttle of heavy boots behind me. This part of the line was desolate and silent. It was the first sector to fall to German attacks and to succumb to flooding. I prayed that the enemy had lost interest in patrolling it. There was something eerie about it. The pressure in the atmosphere changed. I could tell in an instant that something was horribly wrong. As soon as this feeling struck me, I realized that I was not alone. I could hear the beating of hooves against the earth coming from every which way. I knew that should their gaze meet me, it would mean the end of me. I hurled myself into the rancid water beneath me to hide and waited. When I was certain I couldn't hold my breath any longer, the sound moved away from me. For the first time in months, I could let out a sigh of relief. The horsemen truly do roam this place. After hours of hopeless wandering, I have found a dry place to hunker down for the night. I pray that I do not see the morning. October 28, 1916 Yet again, sleep failed to find me last night. Instead, I writhed about in a state of unrest, waiting for the undead to butcher me or for the dogs to drag me off. I had to be close to the end of our lines. If I could make it a little further, I was sure I could evade the dead and find a living patrol. I didn't care whether they were German. I liked my odds with the living over those with the dead. I pressed on through the fog of war, seeing rats and dogs feasting on corpse flesh. They paid no attention to me, though. I suppose the dead made for an easier supper. Countless hours passed as I wandered the dismal abyss, unable to find the road that we marched in on so many days before. To my utter shock and dismay, I soon found myself right back where I started. The undead had moved on, but the corpses of my friends, bloated and mangled, remained. The heaps of barbed wire suspended some men, giving the illusion they still stood watch over their derelict sector, while others laid face down in the floodwater and mud. Regardless of where they landed, their eyes appeared hollow, giving no sign that they had ever truly been alive. It is difficult to explain the facial expressions they bore. Yes, their eyes were devoid of life, their complexions were pale, their cheeks sunken in a gaunt manner, but yet many faces had an impossibly wide grin that stretched from ear to ear. I didn't linger to inspect them with any form of scrutiny, but I swear something had eaten some of their flesh straight from their bones. Some kind of creature gorged on them, but the wounds didn't resemble the work of a hound. What they resembled, I would rather not say. October 31st, 1916 Madness is a cruel mistress. As I wander this battlefield, taking in each of its unnatural atrocities, a soft voice speaks to me. It confirms my fears that no soul can be dismissed from this forsaken battlefield. 
She offers me a reprieve from this forlorn place if I just spill my blood. There is no bartering with her. I am certain that if I do not comply, my soul will become permanently imprinted on this land. That I will always haunt the grounds on which I will die. That I will never find rest or sanctity. Having nothing to lose, I slipped the edge of my knife into my palm. The cold steel edge split my cold, clammy flesh, and soon warm crimson blood mixed with the mud beneath my feet. Her voice whispered to me, uttering only one word, more. She demands both flesh and blood. I must choose wisely because, according to her, my bloodline will always bear the scars of my cowardice. But in exchange, I will live. I will get to see my darling Lucretia again. My sincerest apologies, my dear lord. But I must give the Lady of War what she so desires. In our final tale, we find ourselves up the bluff. When will people learn? Picnicking on precipices is just asking for trouble, isn't it? But in this tale, shared with us by author Anne-Marie Morgan, the feats we witness are less daring do and more daring don't. I join Sarah Thomas and Nicole Goodnight in performing this tale. So we recommend that you escape from the escarpment as soon as possible. But if you decide to stay, then you might come face to face with the Crawler of Cantwell Cliffs. Cantwell Cliffs is a tourist trap. The winter is slightly better, and snowy days even more so. That's when I always try to go. I live nearby, and I've had enough of the summer crowds for one lifetime. My friend Sarah had never been before, so we decided to go this past Valentine's Day, since we both had the day off, and would otherwise be spending the holiday alone. When the forecast turned from flurries to snow to a possible weather emergency, we thought about canceling our trip. But we had ice cleats, and she drove a jeep. So we thought, what the hell? We'd been planning the trip for weeks, and we weren't going to let a little snow ruin it. When we got there, it didn't disappoint. The parking lot was completely empty, a sight I didn't think I'd ever see. Two in the afternoon, and not only was there not a car in sight, but there weren't even any tire tracks. Granted, the snow was still falling, and about to turn dangerous in a few hours, so maybe we shouldn't have been out there either. But damn, was it beautiful. Sarah, you could come here a hundred more times and you might never see it empty like this again. We started walking, 
And even despite what happened that day, I'd never seen it look so lovely. The snow had stuck to every branch of every tree. There were lots of pine trees, which gave the forest a ton of green, even in the midst of winter. If I didn't know we were in the Midwest, just by looking at it, I would have guessed Alaska or Canada, somewhere much farther north. The start of the trail can be hard to spot, even with the markers. It was at the edge of a cliff and began at a steep staircase that ran through a crevice in the rock. There were a few old snowed-over footprints approaching the edge of the staircase, and even one on the top stair. But whoever had approached the steps had quickly decided it was not the right kind of weather to be hiking in. You sure you're up for this? Heck yeah. This is nothing. Easy peasy. Even with our ice cleats, it was tough. The ice and snow had frozen on the already weathered shallow steps, so it was basically just a ramp to the bottom. And without the spikes on our shoes, we wouldn't have been able to do it. Sarah fell near the bottom and slid about five feet before she could catch her footing again. Easy peasy, huh? She just brushed the snow off her pants and smiled. That did make me rethink the hike, and I almost suggested turning back. But we were here, and we'd already done the toughest part of the trail. Why not keep going? We started out walking under the cliffs, past a few waterfalls. Most of the falls down here just trickle unless the rain is heavy. But in the winter, the ice freezes over itself in thick sheets, creating the illusion of a roaring, formidable waterfall. Sometimes the ice connects with the ground, sometimes it just hangs in perilous stalactites with a pillar of bubbled blue ice at the bottom. I snapped a few pictures with my camera, some of the only ones I'd taken down here without people in them, though Sarah jumped into a few. Do you think it's too icy to do the rim trail? I mean, the trail is technically a one-way, so we kind of have to do it, right? Don't worry. The path doesn't go too close to the cliffs. Well, if you think it's safe, I'm game. Sarah wasn't from the Midwest, so she didn't know the area as well. When we had first started hiking together, I'd had to reassure her that we didn't need bear mace or rattlesnake boots, and yes, one bottle of water would be plenty. There really weren't any dangers in our part of the wilderness, apart from the occasional homeless camp. She'd sometimes ask about urban legends, too. If she should bring her EVP, or if we ever saw Bigfoot out here. And I'd tell her that I didn't believe in that stuff. Until we were hiking a bit too close to sunset or heard an animal scream I didn't recognize. Then sometimes I'd believe in that stuff a little bit. Anyway... We took some slippery steps up to the rim trail and started climbing elevation a bit, rising near the top of the tree line that we'd just been underneath. I'd done the trail countless times over the years, and it always seemed higher up in the winter. The naked branches made it easier to see down off the sides of the cliffs, though we didn't venture too close to the edges. There was a small, open-faced cabin overlooking one of the cliffs, and we sat for a minute reading the graffiti and eating granola bars. It was mostly initials carved into hearts. We found one that said T and S, and I joked with her that it was a sign we were both playing for the wrong team. We were just putting our water back in our bags when we heard it, coming from somewhere ahead of us. Help! I was almost thinking I'd imagined it, but it repeated, louder. Help! Hello! Hello! Again, 
coming from ahead of us, coming from down the cliff. We looked at each other with wide eyes and walked closer, stopping a few feet from the edge. We didn't want to get too close in the winter. It was impossible to tell what was rock and what was snow, ready to fall and take you with it. Hello? Hello? Please, help me. I looked at Sarah. I got this. I grabbed a stick and got down on my stomach, crawling forward and poking the snow ahead of me to make sure there was still solid ground ahead. Eventually, I could peer over the edge. There was a man down at the bottom of the cliff, and when I saw him, I knew in a quick, harsh way that he was not okay. His arms and legs were twisted up, and he was sprawled out on the ground. No blood that I could see, but that didn't mean much. He was wearing a light green coat and pants that looked torn and dirty. I gasped when I saw him, but steadied my voice to yell down to him. Don't worry! We'll go get help! Please, wait! Don't leave me alone! I glanced back at Sarah. I can go. She was definitely more in shape than I was. She was a runner. In a pinch, she'd get back faster. I didn't want her to leave me there, but we couldn't leave him alone. You might get reception on the way back. Turn your phone on loud. It'll blow up with emails and stuff when you hit reception. She nodded. If you don't get it on the trail, you'll get it driving out of here. Maybe on the first hill. She swung her pack over her shoulder. I'll be fast. Go. And she was gone. I yelled back down to the man. Don't worry, I'm still here. The wind had died down during my brief conversation with Sarah, and I could hear much more clearly when he replied. Thank God, and thank you, darling. And my friend is going to get help. Then, even though I didn't believe it, I said, You're going to be okay. I reached under my stomach and moved a few sticks out of the way, settling into the cold snow. When I peered over the edge again, I got a better look at him. His right arm was folded over, and it looked too short, like it had snapped before his elbow and folded over twice, just in a horrible bundle. His other arm was tucked under him, and his legs looked off. Neither of them were bending the right way. But he was talking. That was a good sign. My eyes wandered to the snow around him, and it looked disturbed, like he tried to drag himself around. What's your name? It's Tiffany. What's yours? I pulled my hat down a bit, the cold getting to me more now that I wasn't moving around. Though the wind had died down, which was nice. Tiffany, are you alone up there, Tiffany? Yeah, my friend went to go get help. I tried to sound reassuring, but I didn't think it was good that he was asking that so soon after I'd already told him. That's good. That's very good. How long have you been down there? A long time. And I thought, yeah, no shit. He must have been there at least a day. There hadn't been any other tire tracks on the lot. Then I thought, wait a second, where was his car? I've been down here so long, Tiffany. I wiggled closer to the ground, trying to get lower down to avoid the sudden rush of wind that was back in the forest. I knew it was just the cold, but when he said my name, 
The way he said it made me feel even more cold. I immediately felt bad for that thought. He was clearly delirious, but nonetheless, something about him was unsettling. And I've been so alone down here. There was something else bothering me. Why hadn't we seen any footprints going down those stairs at the start of the trail? I peered back over the edge again. Well, don't worry. You're not alone anymore. He shuffled slightly. No, I'm not. I was about to tell him not to move around when my eyes locked onto the snow surrounding him. The way that it was disturbed, it wasn't like he'd been crawling around. There were footprints leading up to his body and coming from deep, deep into the forest. And with that, he sat up. My eyes widened with the awful but confusing realization that he hadn't fallen. He'd walked there, and I'd laid there for a second trying to make sense of things. He must have been trying to distract me for some reason. I thought about those stories you hear about girls on the sides of the road with a baby or a broken down car who flag you down only to distract you long enough for the rest of their crew to come out of the woods or block you in on the road. I looked behind me, certain that someone would be closing in, but there wasn't anyone there. I looked back again one more time, ready to stand up and run. But what I saw froze me in place. He was standing up, but he was standing up on legs that were still backwards, the knees bending out behind him. And then his arms unfurled. The bends I'd interpreted as broken bones were just a ruse to disguise how long his arms were. They just kept getting longer as they straightened out. And at the ends, his hands that had been covered with the snow were now visible. The fingers were incredibly long, with black points at the ends that I could only assume were claws. Then he walked up closer to the cliff and I lost sight of him. It was concave at the bottom. I heard an awful scraping sound, and in just seconds, I saw his head peer around the ledge higher up on the cliff. Peekaboo! He was climbing up the side of the cliff. I got up and ran as fast as I could on the snow and ice. It felt like trying to run in a dream, my feet sticking and slipping with every step, and I was going so slow, so very slow. Even under the best conditions, I couldn't have outrun him. Even the wind was working against me. It must have been at least 20 miles an hour, pushing me back towards that terrible drop-off. I heard crunching in the snow behind me, and I knew he'd cleared the cliff. I ran a few more steps, and then I slipped on the fucking ice like some girl in a horror movie. Before I could get up, I felt claws on my back. I didn't think my heart could beat any faster but it went into overdrive as soon as he spoke. Caught you, Tiffany. He dragged me back with ease as I kicked and yelled and fought for my life. But it didn't faze him. This creature, whatever it was, his claws were digging into my sides and every kick and punch I hit him with drove them in deeper. But I didn't stop. He dragged me past the cabin and I tried to grab it. As we got closer to the edge of the cliff, I dug my nails into the ice, but it did nothing. The creature threw me over its shoulder as it prepared to descend, my feet up in the air. 
I grabbed a small tree growing off the side of the cliff and put all my strength into holding on. Come on now, Tiffany. I won't drop you. He pulled me, and I looked at him. Really looked at his face for the first time. It looked human, but it was so pale, and his eyes were icy blue, almost white. His arms were so cold, deathly cold, and his clothes, they were too small. His jacket had little blue flowers embroidered on it. There were holes on the sides and down the front, like it had been ripped off. Ripped off with those same claws? I wondered. I kicked madly at the ice above us, keeping a death grip on the tree. By luck, or maybe the divine intervention of some god, if you believe in that sort of thing, the ice cracked. The creature looked up with what could possibly be surprise on its dead face and fell. It let go of me, instinctively putting its arms up with their terrible claws to protect itself. I held onto the tree for dear life as the ice slid away, just inches from taking the small tree with it. Blue stalactites of ice taller than me fell with the creature, and I found myself hoping that they would fall on top of it, impaling its horrible, misshapen body. I clambered up the edge of the cliff with an agility I didn't know I possessed, and I ran. It was painfully slow, but the wind had died down a bit. I didn't hear anything behind me, but I didn't slow down. After five or maybe ten minutes of running on the ice, I found Sarah. She was limping along, trying to get up a staircase. Sarah! She looked back, a slightly embarrassed look on her face, and I gathered that she must have been walking too fast and messed up her ankle. I caught up to her as quickly as I could. We need to get out of here. Now! What about that guy? He said he didn't want to be left alone. Then, a dark look passed over her face. Did he... I mean, is he... He's not dead. At least, I don't think so. I'll tell you about it in the car. We need to go! Tiff, what do you mean? I thought about telling her the truth. I did. But this was slowing us down, and I needed her to have more of a sense of urgency. So I told her something more plausible what I'd first thought was happening when I saw those footprints. He wasn't hurt, Sarah. It was some kind of distraction. He didn't fall, he walked there. I think there might be more people in the woods. I think he was trying to keep us there for uh, something. Oh, fuck. She'd heard enough. We hightailed it as fast as we could with her ankle, and I practically had to push her up the last set of stairs. I don't know how it didn't catch up to us, and I figured that it must have been dead or at least hurt. We made it out and I got behind the wheel. The snow was falling again, and the drive was tense. I'd never driven Sarah's car, and the roads were windy and icy. We came dangerously close to running off the road twice, but I wasn't afraid of getting into a car wreck. No, I was afraid of what would find us if we ended up stranded by the side of the road. I took Sarah to the hospital and I told her that I'd filed a police report while she was in there. I wished I could have done something, told someone. But who the fuck do you tell about something like that? Something impossible. I spent a long time Googling the history of that area. Any creatures or ghosts or anything similar to what I saw. But there was nothing. I looked at the previous deaths there, wondering if there had been a man who'd fallen from the cliffs who matched his description 
but I didn't find anything. But then again, in the wilderness, you could never be sure. The scavengers could have moved his body. But I don't know. If that thing was a ghost, what kind of ghost can climb up a wall and grab people? I was going to let it go, move on with my life as usual, just without ever going hiking again. But then I saw the news later that week. Someone had died at Cantwell Cliffs. They'd fallen from the tops of one of the cliffs. And worse still, they'd been out the same day as us. The story had popped up on my phone while I was looking at it before bed. And when I saw the title, I turned on my lights and went to go double-check that my door was in fact locked. A girl had been out hiking during the snowstorm, just an hour or so after we'd left. She was an experienced hiker. She'd been mountain climbing and exploring in areas much more dangerous than here. Her family was baffled at how she could have fallen. Then, I got down to her injuries. Her right arm was broken in multiple places, and her legs had both snapped backwards. Which, yes, I know could have just been a coincidence, but it gets worse. She was wearing a green coat that none of her family remembered her owning. There wasn't a picture, but they described it as being distinctive, as it had blue flowers embroidered into it. She had puncture wounds on her side, and her injuries were so extensive that the autopsy had initially been released in case there was foul play involved. But no, the coroner had ruled that she must have fallen, and the cause of death was actually hypothermia. The article ended with her brother talking about how horrible it was. She must have been down there for hours before succumbing to the cold. He'd said, I just can't stop thinking about her, being out there, alone for so long. But he's wrong. I don't think she was alone. I think she had the company of that horrible creature as she lay dying in the snow. I vividly remember his voice chiding. I won't drop you. I found myself wondering if she'd fallen or if he'd taken her down the cliff, then broken her bones himself. They took down the article a little while later. After they determined there wasn't foul play, her family didn't want the graphic autopsy report out there anymore. Local news like that can be hard to find, and if I hadn't seen it that week, I might never have. It made me wonder how many other deaths had happened there that just aren't reported online. I wondered how many others had those same injuries. Eventually, I came up with a theory. The creature was feeling well enough to snatch another person just after me and Sarah left. It should have been able to come after us. We were going so slow. And there are no legends, no sightings, no nothing of this thing. If it lives there or haunts there or however it exists, there should be something. I wonder if, maybe, it only frequents the trail when the crowds are gone and lone hikers can be found on the trail. Perhaps it only hunts prey that's alone. Alone like it kept saying it didn't want to be. And I guess for a few hours that day, when it had the company of a dying girl, it wasn't alone. And neither was she.
As the fires wane and embers glow, our stories cease as shadows grow. The night is long and darkness deep. Remain with us. Embrace no sleep. The No Sleep Podcast is presented by Creative Reason Media. The musical score was composed by Brandon Boone. Our production team is Phil Mykolski, Jeff Clement, and Jesse Cornett. Our creative content manager is Olivia White. Our editor-in-chief is Jessica McAvoy. I'm your host and executive producer, David Cummings. Please visit thenosleeppodcast.com for show notes and more details about the people who bring you this show. On behalf of everyone at the No Sleep Podcast, we thank you for listening and for being a supportive Season Pass member who is under our spell. This audio production is copyright 2021 and 2022 by Creative Reason Media Inc. All rights reserved. The copyrights for each story are held by the respective authors. No duplication or reproduction of this audio program is permitted without the written consent of Creative Reason Media, Inc.